आई वी एम एवरी ईयर अज मेला टेक्स प्लेस इन न्यूयॉर्क लीडर्स फ्रॉम ऑल ओवर द वर्ल्ड सेंड ऑफ द यूनाइटेड नेशन दे मेक इम्पॉर्टेंट स्पीचेज अबाउट एवरीथिंग फ्रॉम सिक्योरिटी टू क्लाइमेट चेंज टू कल्चर एंड फूड दे होल्ड कॉन्फ्रेंसिस एंड टॉक्स एंड गिव आउट अवार्ड्स लीडर्स स्पीक टीच अदर इनफॉर्मली एंड होल्ड समिट्स ऑन द साइड लाइन्स द एन्युअल मीटिंग ऑफ द यूनाइटेड नेशन जनरल असेंबली इज एन एक्साइटिंग टाइम टू बी इन न्यूयॉर्क एंड इट्स एवरीथिंग यू इमेजिंड इंटरनेशनल रिलेशन टू बी suave sophisticated diplomatic Welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm your host Hamsani Hariharan and every week on the podcast I talk to experts about global affairs and foreign policy. The 74th session of the United Nations General Assembly begins today, the 17th of September. And of course, Prime Minister Narendra Modi will be there. While a lot of people in India like to think of the current government putting India on the map, that's not necessarily true. India was a founding member of the United Nations in 1945, two years before independence, and it's played an active role on the world stage over the last seven decades almost. My guest for today is Ambassador B S Prakash. Ambassador Prakash has served as India's ambassador to Brazil and the Consul General of India in San Francisco. He was the head of the UN division in the Ministry of External Affairs and also served as minister and alternative representative of India to the International Atomic Energy Agency or the IAEA in Vienna. He has also served in other countries in a number of positions in his long diplomatic career. I'm talking to Ambassador Prakash not only about India at the UN but also about reform of the United Nations and the challenges that it faces in the current world order. But before we dive into the conversation Let's hear from IVM Podcasts. Hello and welcome to a brand new week on the IVM Network. If you're not following us on social media, please do. We are at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you're listening to a show of ours and you like it, please take a screenshot, tag us. We will reshare, repost, and retweet your screenshots from our account. Here's what's in store for you this week. On Cyrus says, Cyrus is joined by Sarang Sate and Paula Maglin of Bhadipa. Tune in for a fun conversation about how the Marathi digital platform came about. This week, IVM Podcasts co-founder Kavita Rajwade and Karthik Nagarajan take you through the journey of the Filter Coffee podcast. They share their favorite memories from renowned guests and talk about what to look forward to in the show's future. On Marbles Lost and Found, Zain and Avanti host an AMA special where they answer listener questions. On Mr and Mrs Binge Watch, Janice and Anirudh continue their Emmy special series. Tune in to know their picks from the comedy category. On Water Player, Mikhail Akash and Siddharth are discussing the Ashes, the Afghanistan Bangladesh match and a lot more. On Varta Lab, it's a crossover episode. Hosts Akash and Naveen are joined by Anupam Gupta, host of Paisa Vesa. Tune in to discover a different side of Anupam on this podcast. On Agla Station Adulthood, Ayushi and Ritasha discuss how to navigate through relationships as adults. On Polya Bazi, host Pranay talks to Samrat, a writer and journalist, about the causes and dynamics of the tensions in Northeast India. On Kinetic Living, coach Urmi shares a workout called X Cross MC on Tabata Tuesdays and also highlights the importance of resting between workout routines on Thriving Thursdays. On Geek Fruit hosts Tejas and Dinkar turn the tables from last week and this week discuss singers who decided to be actors and how they have fared. On the Pragati podcast Manoj Kewal Ramani joins our host Pawan to explain the ongoing Hong Kong protests and its history so far. And with that let's get you back to your show. Welcome back to States of Anarchy. I'm Hamsini Hariharan and I'm talking to Ambassador BS Prakash about the United Nations. Hello Ambassador Prakash thank you so much for joining me on States of Anarchy I'm very glad to speak to you Pleasure to be with you on this podcast Great so India has been a founding member of the UN I think it uh, sort of joined the UN in 1945 even before it got independence How do you think over the last 70 odd years India's approach to the UN has changed I think that's a very relevant question today because uh, the premise of your question I agree with it completely if you really look at uh, the founding years of the un let's say yes we were a charter member and we participated even in the charter negotiations in 1945 and of course once we became independent we were a member but i think our uh, approach our impulse our understanding of the un all that has changed 
over the last 70 years and i would say in a broad brush stroke kind of a characterization that we have a much more realistic understanding of how the un functions today than a kind of an idealistic approach to un that we had in the beginning and that i have seen during my professional career itself we can elaborate on that if you want now or as we proceed yes so please go ahead how was how did you see that play out when uh, you were with the un i would put it like this when i talk about the un now that i'm uh, retired and i do talk about my experiences let's say at a rotary club or at a school function or at a model un program in india there is still a kind of a uh, belief that the un stands for justice that the un charter is an ideal kind of a construct a, a document without uh, any blemishes or ambiguities or question marks so to go back to where we started i think uh, in 1947 we had great faith in both the what the un does in the goodness of un and also to its efficacy and this has to some extent continued all these years despite the fact that as early as 1948 uh, we had a very disappointing and i would even say a bitter experience with the un that in that relates to the kashmir issue as you know but i think the way i would characterize what has changed is that starting with the mrs gandhi perhaps as distinct from nehru's uh, kind of idealism we became uh, more realistic we understood that the un is not a place for morality it is not necessarily like a court which renders justice nor is it a kind of a place where you know there is a moral enactment taking place but it is really a contestation between nations and it's a power play it's a power play where the permanent five members of the un exercise a great deal of uh, control and influence and uh, there is also a realization that we perhaps were victims of that in 1948 with the jammu and kashmir issue and uh, i think uh, as i was saying that with mrs gandhi with what happened uh, with bangladesh in 1971 what happened with our nuclear program then again what happened when we had the nuclear explosion in uh, uh, in uh, 1998 uh, and so on uh, i think we uh, one way of looking at it i would say is that as india's power has grown as india's profile has changed we have a much more uh, nuanced understanding of the un which is ultimately the united nations it is the nations which come together and these are nation states which really sometimes do come to good decisions and sometimes come to complex decisions and sometimes arrive at decisions which affect your interests so from idealism to realism is the way i would see the way our approach towards un has changed that's very interesting and i agree with you i think there's a a, a lot of um not optimism but a sort of misplaced optimism i would say with respect to the un uh, because when i was researching at a think tank in bangalore and i would tell people that i worked in international relations their first question was oh okay you're working in the un uh, and i said no no uh, there are a lot of things that you can do outside the un anyway and then it was very difficult for them to sort of grasp the idea that um the un is something that's plagued by power politics and that it's actually an essential feature of the un itself so i was just thinking how would you characterize would you characterize the early years um of india's foreign policy as idealism because there are also a lot of contrasting opinions that now say that the foreign policy that uh, our then prime minister jawaharlal nehru followed was realist that his decision for example to turn down a unsc permanent seat was to make sure that uh, there wasn't sort of any power politics played between uh, india and china at that point in time so how do you think of that strain of thought uh, i think uh, when india became independent uh, there were these ideas that international peace and security is realizable is an ideal and india should contribute to it 
This goes back to the essential idealism of the Indian Freemen movement and the influence of Mahatma Gandhi and the idealism of Nehru. But I don't want to overstate this. Nehru was a supreme, uh, was one of the people who really knew international affairs in India very well. He knew the currents uh, which were uh, kind of uh, influencing world politics. He was aware of the beginning of the Cold War, let us say from uh, 1950. And there were also other important parts of what the UN, uh, UN's agenda which we believed in. So if you go back to the UN Charter, some of the fundamental principles, foundational principles, prevention of war, uh, promotion of peace, reconciliation of conflicts, these are the, the security agenda, but also decolonization and self-determination, which was a very big agenda throughout the 50s and 60s, even in some cases in Africa in the 70s. And India was a very, uh, contributed a great deal to that process of decolonization and self-determination, going up to South Africa and the end of the apartheid. That is the second pillar, I would say. Then this whole development debate and India's contribution to that has been seminal. The North-South divide, the opportunities for developing countries and the rights of developing countries, whether it is uh, development assistance or transfer of technology, or financial institutions or a whole range of issues in which India not only was an intellectual leader in conceptualizing and articulating the views of developing countries, but also even the terminology we changed it. For instance, there was this, uh, to give you an example, there was this talk of the third world. So we said, what is this third world? I mean, the world is not fragmented like this. There are the developed countries and the developing countries, not the underdeveloped countries, but the developing countries, things like that. A whole lot of examples I can give, but I won't do it. So the development debate and to some extent, the human rights debate as well, in which we took a nuanced uh, and a careful position because the human rights debate was also a part of the Cold War. So I think all that was there and I think from the uh, late 40s in the 50s, uh, so there was that. But our own interests were affected. Uh, we can come to that later if you want, Hamsini, the Jammu and Kashmir issue, but our own interests were affected. But slowly, as I said earlier, India's position also changed from a developing country. We are still a developing country, but there are aspects of development where we transcended the traditional idea of a developing country. We developed a nuclear program, a space program, we had a base in Antarctica, all that happened. So there is that. On the security front, we had our own problems and we also developed uh, a military capacity. In all this, I must also mention that we were major contributors to the UN peacekeeping operations in which we believed. So I would say that I agree with uh, what you what you said a moment ago, that it would be unfair to characterize Nehru as an idealist. He had idealism, but he was also conscious of India's interests. And uh, everybody makes, makes mistakes. Maybe he did commit mistakes with regard to taking the Kashmir issue to the UN, but it changed. And then I think what has happened is that first with Mrs. Gandhi, then with Narsim Rao in 1990 and with the economic liberalization, let's say, recognition of Israel. And now we come up to the period after that, uh, our own nuclear test, and now with the current uh, prime minister and the current government, we are, I think, now conscious of our own power as one of the major powers in the world, uh, whichever way you define power, but we are one of the major voices in the world, major powers in the world, whether it is with regard to climate change, or biodiversity, or security treaties, or position of nuclear weapons. So we are not just one of the 190 countries. We are not one of the 100 countries in the group of 77. We are different. We are unique. I am not claiming that we are a superpower. I don't think we are. But we are a major power. And therefore, I think, as I said, we have a different understanding of the UN and the instrumentality of the UN also for our purposes. 
I took too long to explain all this, but uh, I hope. Uh, no, so that's completely fine. I, I'm very happy that you're giving me very detailed answers about each of these things because I believe that it's important to be nuanced about it. You can't really say, "Oh, Nehru was an idealist," and the debate ends there. There are lots of factors, as you explained, that goes into each of these policies. I agree with you. Um, yes. So, which also brings me to the idea of India herself has changed over the last seventy years. Right, so it has gone from a colony of Britain to what it is now—a rising power, or a superpower, or whatever sort of nomenclature you would like to use with it. But through this time, it's also sort of punched above its weight in lots of areas, and I think um, its uh, representation at the UN and what it's done on multilateral forums is one important uh, way in which it has done that. Do you think yes. you agree with that statement? I, How do I you think agree. of India's yes. own journey? I agree with you that uh, I think uh, India's uh, voice and also its contribution in a range of issues. I agree with your characterization that it punched above its weight. Of course, India has weight just in terms of size, demography, and intellectual capital. It has a lot of weight. It may not have had that economic weight. but as i was explaining earlier on a number of issues india kind of spoke not only for itself but for the developing countries or for the countries which were not already a part of a club or let's say outside the western powers so in a number of ways india expressed uh, mature and independent positions on issues and in that way i think punched above its weight there are a few countries that i would name which uh, are similar to india Uh, Brazil is one because I also know Brazil a bit. I was ambassador to Brazil. It's the largest country in Latin America, but they also have, you know, think tanks, universities, people interested in IR, people interested in capable of understanding the complicated issues in the World Trade Organization and what the interests of developing countries are in area like biodiversity. now when you have a negotiation in a matter like this you would have a 100 member japanese delegation i'm not talking only of the west but there are countries with all these capacities and capabilities now not every country not every developing countries has it but a few countries like uh, india of course but brazil china always had it and maybe nigeria sometimes from africa south africa indonesia so some countries have a kind of a proclivity to be interested in global issues so that awareness interest and of late even kind of carving out a position in global affairs i think is the way i would see how india's uh, position has changed and has evolved with regard to the un so far we've been talking about the un as sort of one monolithic organization but it's not that it breaks down into a lot of smaller organizations um that sort of conduct its day to day affairs from the unga to the unsc to the undp and so on and so forth um right. you'd mentioned one particular issue earlier which was jammu and kashmir and i thought maybe it would be interesting to look at particular issues that india has brought to some of these forums and uh, to see how its position has changed over the years uh yes to start with uh, that particular issue i think uh, what was the issue in 1948 there was a case of aggression against india as we see it and as the facts are because the jammu and kashmir the maharaja of jammu and kashmir had acceded to india so in terms of uh, international law and i think in terms of the what we had envisaged it was clearly a part of india but there had been an aggression so i think india could have well opted for a position in which you said that what is important is vacation of aggression you either do it as self defense or you ask for vigesh vacation of aggression instead of that for various reasons we went in for a kind of a mode of operation where the un became a judge to this issue it became a case of breach of international peace and security it was not an international issue but we made it into an international issue and that had kind of plagued us for many years till slowly till the simra agreement when we said that this is strictly bilateral and now of course the facts on the ground the reality has changed so i think we can say uh, forget the issue with regard to the un another uh, since you talked about uh, the un not as a monolithic organization you are absolutely right uh, let's say 
just to give examples, the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, it's a part of the larger UN family, but it is uh, located in Vienna, as you know, not in New York or Geneva. Now, in the IEEA, from the very beginning, we have been a permanent member of the governing board. It's like being a permanent member of the Security Council. But in the nuclear field, because of India's capability, from the beginning, we made sure that we were always a permanent member. And we are a very active member at the IAEA without ever signing the NPT. And we did not sign the Non-Proliferation Treaty because of well-known reasons. It is discriminatory. It divided the world arbitrarily between the nuclear haves and the nuclear have-nots. And though we did have the capability, the status was denied to us and so on. So that is an organization in which our profile and our positions have been entirely different. Now in organizations like the World Health Organization, the WHO, or UNESCO, which deals with uh, culture, or UNICEF, which deals with children, India's role has been, I think, very positive in all these organizations, whether it relates to health or uh, food and agriculture, the FAO. Our role has been that, look, these are international cooperation is important. And increasingly, supposing there is a pandemic, supposing you want to prevent HIV AIDS from spreading, this is an issue that transcends national boundaries. You can't say it is limited to you know South Africa or Uganda. I mean, it will spread. So therefore, in all these organizations, the very basis of these international organizations under the UN umbrella, so to say, is based on not conflicts, not peace and security, but actually cooperation on harmonization of positions, on uh, conciliation of different views. Let's start with the very first uh, organization, which the very first organization in a multilateral system was the International Telegraphic Union. Because whatever your politics are, you need to harmonize your frequencies. You need to harmonize your flight paths and therefore the International Civil Aviation Organization and so on. So these are, you know, organizations without much contestation. The more you come closer to national interests, the more uh, problematic it becomes. But when the UN is seen as somewhere where you kind of harmonize your positions, you kind of determine the wavelengths of your frequencies of flight paths, then it is easy and it is necessary. So India has done all this, all the other countries have done that, but India has given a certain shape in determining the outcomes in these organizations. And we have not even come, Hamsini, to other kind of multilateral organizations outside the UN. There are several types. There are regional organizations such as SARC or ASEAN or the EU. There are uh, functional organizations, uh, the most dramatic example these days being the climate change negotiations, which are one issue or several issues. Then there are strange beasts, so to say, like BRICS, IPSA. These are from different continents. You can't really pin down the issue or the identity of these organizations. So let me say that the nature of multilateralism has changed from the UN to a kind of many, many multilateral organizations. At this point, let's take a break. Did you know that Parsis in Mumbai, instead of being left at the Tower of Silence after they die, are now cremated? And why? Because a cow fell sick in the early 1990s. Did you know that the smog in Delhi is caused by something that farmers in Punjab do and that there's no way to stop them? Did you know that there wasn't one gas tragedy in Bhopal, but three? One of them was seen, but two were unseen. Did you know that many well-intentioned government policies hurt the people they're supposed to help? Why was demonetization a bad idea? How should GST have been implemented? Why are all our politicians so corrupt when not all of them are bad people? I'm Amit Verma, and in my weekly podcast, The Seen and the Unseen, I take a shot at answering all these questions and many more. I aim to go beyond the scene and show you the unseen effects of public policy and private action. 
I speak to experts on economics, political philosophy, cognitive neuroscience and constitutional law so that the insights can blow not only my mind but also yours. The Seen and the Unseen releases every Monday. So do check out the archives and follow the show at seenunseen.in. You can also subscribe to The Seen and the Unseen on whatever podcast app you happen to prefer. Welcome back after the break. You're listening to States of Anarchy and I'm Hamsani Hariharan. I think that uh, change from uh, sort of a single large multilateral organization to many multilateral organizations is also a reflection of the world order in a sense uh, because we are moving from sort of what was the Cold War bipolar politics to an order that is more multipolar. I mean, at least that's one way you can categorize it. And because of that, you can also see, you know, new organizations that China is bringing up, like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank or uh, things like OBOR that it's doing. Uh, Do you think that these organizations contest with the UN's mandate? Do you think that these sort of take importance from the UN? In a lot of um, quarters, there is this idea that China is setting up a parallel framework of multilateral institutions. Do you think this holds water? I think it's an interesting uh, question in the sense that there is some truth in it. And at the same time, uh, the UN Charter is unique because every country aspires to be a member of the UN irrespective of the ideology or continent, whether democracy or dictatorship. And in fact, gains legitimacy by joining the UN. Like, for instance, the Palestinians, they very much want to be a full member of the UN or any new country wants to join the UN straight away. And also, I mean, just a slight digression, but if you talk of China forming a parallel kind of a um, a system as you frame, even China already being a permanent member of the Security Council always swears by the UN Charter. It suits it to do so. So the UN has two advantages. First of all, at the level of the world leaders, there are institutions where UN alone has all the world leaders coming together during the UNGA in September. The UN has universality and a very high level of representation on peace and conflict issues. And then it has the Security Council, which is the only organization or only entity which has enforcement powers under Chapter 7. Let's not get too technical, but in under international law, the Security Council can enforce its will, which very few organizations can do. So that is the distinctiveness of the UN. But the truth in what you said is that we must acknowledge and we must uh, accept that today there is this many, many different forums. Let's say the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. They are also dealing with peace and security issues. They are also concerned with terrorism, for instance. But they are focusing on Central Asia and some other countries, including China, Russia and India. The European Union also has all these political mechanisms. They also discuss about human rights and peace and security and what happens in Ukraine and so on, even the aggression, so-called aggression by Russia, but limited to Europe. So there is a regional dimension in many of these organizations as distinct to the universality of the UN. And some of these are functional. They are focusing on specific issues. So I think in reality what is happening today is that you asked me in your question whether they are posing a challenge to the UN. I would say there is a bit of forum shopping that is happening today. You choose the forum depending on your purpose. Like for instance, the US. You want to uh, do something in Iraq. You want to attack Iraq. Uh, In the UN, it is likely to be vetoed. Then you have a coalition of partners, a coalition of willing partners. 20, 30 countries join the US. So you give a Mukhoda kind of a thing, a face mask for your operation by widening it, but you bring in NATO as an organization or you bring in some other organization, the Organization of American States or something. You want to have sanctions, let's say I'm talking to the Americans again, you want, want to have sanctions against, uh, uh, let's say, Cuba or uh, more uh, more relevant today, Iran. UN is much more difficult because there will, you will get vetoed by China or Russia or many people will not support you. 
you go to certain other forums where you are likely to uh, get support. An interesting example is how of late for the last few years we are given up on SARC. Now this is a forum which was just a talking shop and on every issue it got stuck on India, Pakistan subjects as you know and therefore though we were uh, so supportive of SARC and we called it the South Asian Regional Forum and we compared it to ASEAN or to the European Union, we realized that it is uh, quite uh, sterile and quite futile to pursue that agenda. So we kind of let uh, encourage the formation of this new thing called BIMSTEC, uh, which is more the eastern neighbors, more functionality, more possibilities of doing things together in a very concrete sense. So I would say that none of this is a real challenge to the UN as yet in terms of international law. But yes, they do detract from the centrality of the UN. People can do business in different ways and this is the reality. And as I said, you now try to match the forum and the purpose as a country. Yes, I think um, realists at one point said that um, multilateral organizations are just battlegrounds for foreign policy. And I think as more of them come up, you can see how this would work when you're sort of shopping for forums, as you put it. I would say that, uh, uh, that that's, I, I agree with you. I mean, I was saying this, but we should not forget the other part of multilateralism. And that is there are, it, it is necessary for the world to have some progress and ideas. Let's say something like women's rights. Now, much has been done in different countries, but the UN as a forum in which countries have to talk about what is their record with regard to, let's say, women's rights or even uh, LGBT rights or with regard to um, combating HIV AIDS or the best example today is sustainable development goals. So if you are going to say that we will halve the poverty by such and such a year, these are measurable things about drinking water. So there is this whole agenda of the UN, uh, which as I said a little earlier, is all about really cooperation and, and some of them about standard setting. So not all of UN is can be seen in terms of defending national interests. In fact, it should not be so. If each country only looks at its national interests very narrowly defined and not about global interests, climate change being the supreme example for that. If every country only defends its uh, uh, right to have carbon emissions or its developmental goals or whatever, then what happens to the planet? So, I mean, I think that's a kind of uh, enlightened leadership that we also need. Mm. And I think uh, India also played a very uh, important role in the climate change negotiations because for the first uh, few decades even it was saying how was it supposed to sort of develop and lift people out of poverty if it was supposed to also accommodate the constraints put on it by a climate change treaty and then it sort of changed positions on that and I think that's also a very important feature of how it sort of approaches multilateral organizations. I agree with you I think our position evolved and I think uh, particularly uh, in recent years, we have realized that, you know, you can't be a naysayer to everything. That's one. Secondly, yes, uh, we have some difficulties. Uh, this also happens in the WTO negotiations, but I'm not an expert on that. But we, we realize that you have to kind of uh, accept compromises without sacrificing your fundamental interests. And so, therefore, the example that uh, we are discussing now, climate change, we said that Let's do something positive. So the International Solar Alliance, you know, consisting of countries with enormous solar power. So we encourage that. And at the same time, we said that yes, we will also voluntarily do all that we can to cut our carbon emissions and we will report to the UN. So all, all that whole package. And therefore, uh, as I said, we are seen, our approach has, I think, changed. We want to appear to be positive, not only appear to be, we are positive. At the same time, recognizing our constraints. Uh, yes, sir. I just want to point out one small um, dichotomy that I've seen people point out as well, uh, which is that 
India at a lot of junctures within the UN and other multilateral organization points out that it is a developing country that it does need a lot of support to lift people out of poverty and so on but at the same time it's also been trying to punch above its weight it also looks at itself as a rising power as an important decision maker so do you think there's a dichotomy between these two positions and how can we sort of reconcile them um amsini i would say that it's not a real it's not a dichotomy it is the reality of india that uh, india is a country where opposites coexist it is a fact that we have a lot of people uh, as we all know below the poverty line and therefore assistance even external assistance would be very beneficial we are when you look at uh, per capita terms with regard to anything water consumption fuel consumption literacy uh, needs health needs our per capita consumption our per capita income is very very low i mean we are below many developing countries that's a fact of life at the same time india's gdp seen in absolute numbers we are number 4 or number 5 in the world we have all these capabilities so it is a reality of india that you have super specialist hospitals which can perform any modern day medical care and at the same time you have primary health centers without basic medicines we are capable of all these uh, sending the spacecraft to the moon and a man to the moon in the coming years and at the same time we have areas where telephones don't exist we know that this is the reality of india so what do you do when these issues come up i think you have to take position sometimes which uh, has to factor in this uh, real dichotomy that we have with regard to the reality of india that it has i think as 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 the saying goes india exists in different centuries 21st century and maybe also 18th century it's a land of abundant uh, i mean it's a land of prosperity at one level and great poverty at the other all this you know all the contradictions that you can think of is true of india but yes i think uh, what you said as a matter of perception is true people sometimes have accused us to kind of say that you belong to the group of uh, developing countries but at the same time you are not really i mean you have become you have become uh, one of the most advanced countries with regard to some characteristics true but also uh, let's look at other a factor which is very critical today india was a major recipient of assistance whether it was the world bank or bilateral uh, aid we were a major recipient then slowly we realized that uh, this doesn't uh, first of all that we don't really need it this the totality of all the assistance that we get from some small countries let's say netherlands very benign very very positive looking very positive forward looking country but we don't need that small amounts of assistance you have enough resources why should we be a recipient when india has also emerged as a major donor if you really put together all the uh, assistance that we are giving to bhutan nepal african countries afghanistan now we are a major donor so are we a donor or we a recipient we are both so we have also evolved with regard to some of these things you know we don't uh, we, we no longer say that we are certainly we were never least developed health we were not an ldc as it is known as we were never really competing for that kind of aid but we can't say that no 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 we are not going to be getting money from a world bank at all i mean that that is not called for given our reality so i think that thing will continue for some time but slowly i think uh, we will be recognized for what we are so that's a somewhat unique position i hope so um i think that's a very important point to note often when we think about just india punching above its weight um now i want to turn to a slightly different um topic though it is uh, always discussed every time the united nations general assembly meets in september which is the reform of the un people have been saying that the power politics that existed in 1945 are not true today and therefore the un hasn't really changed any of its procedures uh, any of its sops and so on so do you think the un needs reform and if so in what areas how can we reform it uh, i think you framed it well because uh, i would say that the question of the un reforms 
is much wider, much larger than just the reform of the Security Council, which is what uh, seems to preoccupy many people. So I will come to the Security Council in a moment. But when we think of the larger reform of the UN, I think uh, some of it has taken place over the years and India has played a very major role in that. By that I mean that we were asking always for a better balance between the security, peace and security agenda of UN and the developmental agenda of the UN. You know, we said that UN is not all about only conflict, but should also be about development. That has that came about, that has come about slowly. The UN now deals with a whole range of issues and is not only about war and peace. Just to make one point, like for instance, in the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, and I, I, I was India's deputy representative there. So we have a very unique status, as I said earlier, we are a permanent member of the board. We said that, look, the IAEA is not only about nuclear weapons. It is also about the peaceful uses of nuclear energy. And there are peaceful uses. Going back to Homi Baba, nuclear energy was used for certain things. So also, most of what you do is non-proliferation and nuclear weapons and so on. But also look at how it can be used for irradiation of food supplies, medicinal uh, uses of nuclear energy and so on. So we were striking for a balance. Similarly, in the human rights side of the debate, we said that human rights is not just about fault finding, not just saying all the time that Cuba or Myanmar or some other country finding fault with their human rights. It should also be about the promotion of human rights. How do you make a transition where human rights are better observed? And we didn't do that finger pointing. We always believed in the promotional role. So with regard to the UN, I think the reforms that have taken place, I talked about the peace and the development side. The other thing is more respect for the voices of the many, which means more respect for the United Nations General Assembly and for some of the other forms, and not that all powers are only concentrated in the Security Council. This, to be realistic, has not happened. It is the Security Council which drives the agenda in terms of political issues, and not only the Security Council in terms of its 15 members, but it is just the permanent five. And thus, we come to this issue of the Security Council uh, reform. As you rightly pointed out, I think the power structure in the Security Council reflects the power structure of 1945 and not of 2019. Certainly not. How can it be that the permanent five members, among the five permanent five members, uh, is UK, the United Kingdom? We all know what, what kind of a power UK is today. I think it has lost the empire. Uh, it has its clout and influence partly because it's a permanent member due to the historical fact, but it is no longer capable of uh, really resolving uh, world problems. France, same story. And Germany in Europe, which is a much larger economy, more populous, the most important country in, in Europe, is not a permanent member. Why is Germany not a permanent member? Because it had lost the war. So the country which is the second largest, perhaps the second largest contributor to the UN, Japan, and Germany, which is the most important country in Europe, these two are not members of the permanent members of the Security Council, and they have no hopes of becoming one as long as the structure continues, only because they had lost the war, and UK and France were on the side of the victors. And US and China is a different story. So I think the structure of the Security Council as it is constituted today is neither reflective of the power realities, it lacks legitimacy, it lacks efficacy, it cannot solve the problems of the world, it's flawed in terms of any democratic norms because of the veto and because of its structure. So this is something, the reform of which is universally recognized, universally recognized, including by US and Russia, but it's not happening and it's unlikely to happen because of pure vested interests. If you're a member of an exclusive club and you have kept for yourself the right to make changes, to prevent changes being made to it, 
it's very difficult to change it. So I think that's a reform that is necessary, but I don't see it happening. I don't see it happening for reasons of amendment of the charter, for legalistic reasons and not for reasons of for any other kinds of reasons. But one thing, I mean, if and when, if and when, and I stress the if, also the when, if and when it happens, then India is uh, most likely to be in a enlarged security council, in whichever forum it happens. That, that much uh, I can uh, safely say. So that's another kind of reform. And at a larger level, the inability of the UN to take decisions, partly because of the Security Council, partly because of a bloated bureaucracy and uh, excessive legalese and uh, UN becoming a debating forum and a talking forum without delivering results, all these kind of uh, uh, bureaucratic issues and some of them structural issues, uh, I think what we were discussing earlier is taking place. That if you want to really do something, you don't necessarily do it through the UN, but you do it through more uh, better defined, smaller forums. So that's where we are today. And I think in today's, to conclude on this uh, particular issue, Hamsini, in 2019, as we look at Trump, as we look at Boris Johnson, and as we look at all the other problems that we have in the world today, it's very, very difficult to see how any meaningful reform can take place anywhere. I completely agree, sir. I think for reform to happen, you need real impetus. And I don't think any country on the world now sort of has that push to sort of reform the UN in that sense. Uh, this is my last question for you. If someone is interested in reading more about the United Nations, about India's history with it, uh, or anything related to it, what books or what resources would you suggest for them? Uh, I read a wonderful book some years ago. I think it's a fascinating book called The Act of Creation. It is by Schlesinger. It's not the famous historian Schlesinger, but I think his son maybe or could be even, yeah, his son perhaps. Uh, this really talks about how the UN Charter came to be written and how the UN was constituted. It's a very contemporary perspective on the forces at play in 1945. I found the book fascinating. Anyone will find the book fascinating because it shows you how the UN is a construct of that time and of the power play of that time between Stalin and Roosevelt and uh, Churchill, uh, between the victors, between the forces at play. We in India particularly, including me when I, or even after joining the Foreign Service for many years, always looked at this as an ideal construct. But this book tells you that, uh, you know, it's a man-made, so it has many flaws. Uh, you know, the great uh, late jurist Mr. Singhvi once told me that if you analyze the UN Charter, there are at least seven, I think, uh, major self-contradictory propositions. For instance, the UN says that it, there should be no internal interference in states. And at, this very, at the same time, there are many ideas about human rights where you are passing a judgment on the internal affairs of a state. So there is this whole thing about peace and security, but at the same time, you can always have self-defense against aggression. But aggression has been impossible to define. So similarly, today coming to contemporary times, there is no agreed definition of terrorism. After all these years, there is no agreed definition of terrorism. But the UN has a number of treaties and conventions under the UN on terrorism. So things like that. So it gives you a real idea of how these things have come about in terms of real politics. With regard to India and the UN, one of our ablest ambassadors to the UN, Mr. Chinmay Ghareka, he wrote a book called uh, At the Horseshoe Table. You know, the Security Council table is like a horseshoe. So he wrote uh, at the horseshoe table, I think it's about how India performed in Security Council during his years. Another very interesting book. Uh, very recently, a colleague and a friend of mine, Mr. Dilip Sina, this is this year only, he has written a book on the UN called The Legitimacy of Power. All these are available on uh, Amazon. Called the Legitimacy of Power, he really looks at the Security Council and also about India and the UN. So these three come to my mind. And uh, of course, the UN itself, the, for any student or for any researcher, 
if you just uh, google and look at i mean the un has a huge number of publications and i think uh, the un publication services and all these are freely available uh, they have plenty of information of a factual nature that's another resource awesome thank you so much ambassador prakash thank you for speaking with me thank you for recommending these amazing books uh, thank you again i enjoy talking to you and thank you very much and with that we're done with this episode of states of anarchy thanks for staying with us if you wanted to read more about the united nations then scroll down to the episode description where i've listed some readings for you if you have any questions or comments do reach out to me at the rate states of anarchy on instagram or at the rate hamsni h on twitter you can listen to states of anarchy not only on the ivm podcast website and app but also on itunes spotify castbox or wherever you get your podcast from we'll be back next week filter coffee is a fascinating beverage you need to pick the right beans blend them in the right proportion roast them to perfection and slow brew at the right temperature to get the perfect cup which is exactly like great conversations as well you need to track down the most interesting minds get them into their zone and settle down for an unhurried unscripted chat and coffee for me is always 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 best enjoyed with friends i'm karthik nagarajan and do share my table as i meet some of the most interesting people i know and sit them down for a strong cup of coffee and an even stronger conversation join me every wednesday for a freshly brewed episode this is not frappe this is the filter coffee podcast नमस्ते मैं हूं सौरभ चंद्रा और मैं प्रणय कोटिस्थान जब महफिल खत्म होते होते दरवाजे के बाहर पुलिया के ऊपर हम दुनिया भर की जटिल समस्याओं को सॉल्व करने में लग जाते हैं तो हो जाती है पुलियाबाजी अब आजकल के अपार्टमेंट वालों ने तो कभी पुलिया देखी नहीं होगी पर आप फीलिंग तो समझ ही सकते हैं तो आइए शामिल हो जाइए हमारी पुलियाबाजी में जहाँ प्रणय और मैं एक से एक इंटरेस्टिंग टॉपिक्स की तह तक जाएंगे आर्टिफिशियल इंटेलिजेंस बिटकॉइन पाकिस्तान मेडिकल एजुकेशन करेंसी क्राइसिस कभी हम दोनों के साथ और अक्सर स्पेशल एक्सपर्ट गेस्ट की कंपनी में सुनिए हमें आईवीएम की वेबसाइट ऐप या अपने फेवरेट पॉडकास्टिंग प्लेटफॉर्म आरोप हर दूसरे हफ्ते